Amen and amen. Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, you guys are getting really good at that. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve here as the pastor at TVC. We are a, a congregation of Wheaton Bible Church alongside our Iglesia de Pueblo and West Chicago congregations. And, and as, as three congregations united in one church, we just sang that same song, that, that worthy is your name. And I want to draw your attention back to that because we are a familia that knows that Jesus is worthy that sings that Jesus is worthy, that, that shows that Jesus is worthy by the way that we live our lives. He is worthy of all of our devotion. And so as we continue in worship, as I continue to invite you into worship, remembering and reminding each other, declaring that he is worthy, I want to continue to invite you into worship by inviting you into generosity. We talk through that every week, week in and week out. And the reason we do that is because one of the ways not the only way, but one of the ways that we show our devotion to Jesus is by being generous with our whole lives. Not just with our finances, but with our time, with our skills. But finances is one of the easiest ways to see where your devotion lies. Jesus himself teaches this. In Matthew 6, he says, none of us can serve two masters. You will either love one or hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And so when we give, when we give financially, whether we're giving online or, or on our way out at the boxes in the back, we are declaring that our devotion is not to our money and the, the security it tries to promise us, but to God. Through our generosity, financially, with our whole lives, we declare that our devotion is to the God who saved us, the God who gave us true life. This is an act of worship and devotion to the true king of the universe. And so I encourage you this morning to continue, not just today, but throughout the week, to demonstrate that devotion by being generous. Again, not just with your finances, but with your whole lives. Because we serve a generous God, and it is a generous God that saved us. As we think about that and contemplate our discipleship, I do want to invite us into prayer. And after prayer, I'll dismiss all the kids. um, But I want us to pray together uh, before we dive into God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we praise you like Peter does in your word in 1 Peter chapter 1. We bless you, Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it is according to your great mercy that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us who by your power are being guarded through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. God, we praise you for your son, Jesus. The radiance of your glory, the the, the perfect expression of your holy love, the, the, the true prophet, the great high priest, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So this morning, we are grateful because you don't just tell us that we have to be born again. You are the one who causes us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we know because you have told us that without you, we could never get out of our sinful condition. Without you, we could never resurrect our hearts from the deadness of our sins. And so we thank you this morning for the living hope that you have given us. This living hope of a glorious inheritance. A new heaven and a new earth where we'll live with you. Resurrected bodies that will be unaffected by death and disease perfected spirits that are free from the corruption of sin, and and most of all, Lord, an eternity of happiness and joy with you and the familia you have made. It is this living hope that keeps us going day in and day out as we navigate both the joys and the pains of this life. Because like your word says, Lord, you not only keep our inheritance safe in heaven, you also guard us here on earth by your mighty power. You are a strong refuge of security. 
Lord, in a broken and hostile world where we seek security in all kinds of things and in fragile relationships and temporary callings and possessions that won't last and accomplishments that won't satisfy, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who guards our future and our present in the work and hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, your world tells us that you started a good work in us, that you'll bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, that you finish what you started. And so we trust you. But as we trust in your power to keep us, While we're here on earth, we know that we are not home yet. This world is still broken, still frustrated, even as you have already begun to make all things new. And so, Lord, we lift up our needs and our requests to you this morning, the needs of this body. Lord, we pray together for those whose loneliness has become even more painful in this particular season. For those who have lost loved ones, who grieve their absence, Lord, we pray that you would be their comfort, Jesus. Pray for those whose marriages are struggling, who might be feeling more distant than ever before. Would you be their peace and their restoration, Jesus? Pray for those among us who are struggling with an acute or a chronic illness, those who are recovering from surgery, who are going through physical therapy. Would you be their healer, Jesus? Pray for those who are unemployed or underemployed, those whose jobs might be a a daily battle of discouragement and, and demands that are weighing them down. Would you be their provider, Jesus? And Lord, even as we lift our gaze from just our community, we think of communities that surround us and even all over the world, Lord, we pray for those who are victims of natural disasters or destruction, of hunger and poverty, of of racism and oppression, of war and terrorism in our world today. Would you be their restoration, Jesus? Be their justice. Lord, we think especially of our brothers and sisters across the world who are hated and hurt in various ways because of their faith in you. Jesus, in this moment, would you be their glory? Lord, in all this and so much more, would you help us remember that you guard us through faith, that you call us by name, that you give us a steady hope for the day when every tear will be wiped away and there will be everlasting joy in your presence. As we approach your word together this morning, we pray that you would comfort, encourage, correct, rebuke, and train us in righteousness. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment be filled with worship, be marked by the transformation that only your spirit can bring. We pray all this in hope through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, kids, thank you so much for worshiping with us. You are dismissed to your classrooms. Your teachers are in the back. There's a big sign that's waving everywhere so you can head out. And as the kids head out, I want us to open up God's word and read the passage we're going to be in this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Colossians 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a cart right in the back. You can grab one from back there. You can also follow along with me on the screens. But we're going to be in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And I want to invite you to stand one more time as we dive into God's Word together. The Spirit of God tells us from the Word of God these words. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is all idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now, 
Now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Why? Because you've taken off your old self with its practices. Put on the new self. It's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And here, there's no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ. Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, would you put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, would you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Spirit of God, would you empower the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, and the doing of your word this morning? Amen and amen. Follow your heart. Chase your dreams. You are enough. You do you. No matter what, be true to yourself. These are the catchphrases that start Trevin Wax's new book, Rethink Yourself. These catchphrases that echo everywhere we look every day, Streaming on our screens, screaming from our bookshelves, whispering beneath the current of our society. Unchallenged and assumed, these philosophical statements, they they disguise a way of looking at the world and describing reality that sort of go unchecked in our day-to-day. You see, unchallenged, they are shaping us with a different purpose than the one that we were created for. Assumed, they are reshaping us with a different identity than the one that we were given to, given to us by God. And so the author, Trevor Wax, he expands these easy-to-repeat proverbial statements that modern-day society uses, and he expands them to try to understand them and examine them. And he writes that, that according to these slogans, the purpose of life is to discover yourself by looking deep down and then express yourself to the world, no matter what anyone else family members, friends, colleagues, previous generations, or religious institutions might say. Sound familiar? Well, you might be saying, Eric, what's so bad about that? Why are you, it's just kind of some phrases people say. Well, here's the danger that's embedded within those statements. And, And really, it's sneaky because they're not so much found in the definition of these statements, but in their implications. Because what happens when you are enough and you can do anything, don't deliver. What if you're not where you thought you would be by now in your life? The author draws out this danger saying this, if you're not where you want to be in life, something, according to these statements, must be wrong with you. After all, if anyone can achieve anything, and you've not reached the pinnacle of your success or the fulfillment of your dreams, then somehow you failed. It's all on you. And the outcomes of that is that you'll either start viewing yourself as a victim of your situation, the world is out to get me, which leads to bitterness, or you'll blame yourself. 
I'm not good enough, which leads to guilt and anxiety. Sound familiar? We want to know who we are and why we are here. The meaning of life. More importantly, the meaning of our lives. In other words, we want identity. We all crave identity. And our society answers the questions of identity by looking in three directions in a actually particular order. By looking in first, and then looking around, and then looking up, maybe. Look inside yourself to find yourself, to define yourself. No one else can tell you who you are but you. And once you have that settled, then look around. Bring out your newfound identity so that those around you can celebrate you, can, can affirm you, can support you in the identity you've defined for yourself. And, and, and the affirmation of those around you, that's what solidifies and legitimizes your identity. And if you don't get the affirmation you need, well, look to a new group of people who will better understand you. This is kind of the plot of almost every Disney movie, if you think about it. Right? The, the individual against the society that doesn't understand them and won't affirm them, so they go off to find themselves and prove the whole society wrong. Right? We sing along with Elsa. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm ra rage on. You know what? The cold never bothered me anyway. We keep singing without examining what the next verse even really says. Right? If you were to look at the lyrics, she says, It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Forget my community. They held me back. I need to do me what's right for me. And then those who accept me as the real me, the authentic me, that's my new community. And then finally, maybe, we might look up. Because we realize that looking in and around doesn't complete the puzzle of our lives and our identity is so much more complicated than that. We start turning to spirituality, right? To, to something bigger than us, right? We start to, to pray or, or do something religious or maybe even treat something as religious. Religiously devoted to some kind of diet plan or some kind of workout regimen. Anything else that makes us feel connected to something bigger. And yet it still doesn't really satisfy. And yet this, this approach to life, looking in, around, and up, has not made society better. I mean, just look around at our Western society. We're more divided than we've ever been. Is, is it possible that this way of thinking is part of the reason? Right? Because, because questioning or criticizing anyone's decision today is not only about disagreement, but it's actually a, a personal attack on the very core of who they think they are. Is there another way? Is this kind of default what all humans deal with? Well, the book that I keep referring to actually explains that not every society does it like we do. And the only reason I'm bringing it up is because I just want you to see that there's an alternative, which means this isn't the default, which means something has to be done. Because there's other contexts, much like we find in the book of Colossians, where the first instinct is not to look in, but to look around. To look around at your community for the identity before you look within. Your I is determined by the we. You are who you belong to. And so you look around first. But that community is also looking up. That community is trying to define their identity by something bigger. And then only then do you start to look in. Not to find out who you are apart from others, but to see where you are in alignment with your community and where you might be misaligned so that you can realign. And so as 
Trevor Wax explains, in the look-in approach, we define ourselves by how we stand out. In the look-around approach, we define ourselves by how we fit in and build up the community to which we belong. And really, at the end of the day, identity is a question that all humans try to answer from every angle but up. And yet, none of these approaches actually work. Eventually, they break. Looking in, around, and up is the default of our Western society, right? You do you, boo-boo. Like, do your thing. I'm not going to mess with that. The default is something that we assume rather than examine. And that's why, again, seeing other cultures define their identity by another way allows us to see that this isn't the only way to see life. And in fact, gives us an opening to see that our identity can be defined differently. This is not all there is. And there's another way. In fact, not just another way alongside these two ways, but a better way. The way of life. Because you see, our sin distorts our identity, the way we answer those questions, because we look in or around before looking up. But this morning, the text of Colossians 3 offers us a different starting point, a different answer to the questions of meaning and purpose. Who am I and why am I here? Because identity is found first and foremost by looking up before looking everywhere else. If you were here last week on Easter, I shared this quote that essentially today is an expansion of. For true believers, every day is Easter. Every day is a day to live in light of what Christ has done, dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And so this morning, I want to show you what it looks like, what it looks like to live in light of the resurrection of Christ, straight from the text of Colossians 3. This morning, I want to show you how to translate he is risen to you are risen and how that changes everything about the way you live. Because it is only the gospel that raised you that can save you. We are not saved merely by the death of Christ. We are saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. Because like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and I quoted this last week too, if the dead are not raised, if Christ was not raised, our faith is pointless. We're to be pitied more than anybody. The resurrection is essential for our salvation, which is actually before, why before our text, Paul writes in Colossians 2 verses 9 through 12 these words. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwell of the deity lives in bodily form and in christ you have been brought to fullness he is the head over every power and authority in him which is a very important phrase in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of god who raised him from the dead you catch the logic? Right? Jesus is God. He has all power and authority. And if you are in him, then that means that when you identified with him in baptism, when you went under the water like he went under the dirt, you were spiritually buried. And when you came up like he came up from the grave, gasping for air, breathing for the first time, you were spiritually resurrected with him. It is our faith in Jesus that identifies us with Jesus in some mysterious, some profound way, and why Paul says that by faith we died and we came back to life. And why he can continue to explain what he says in the next part of this chapter. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We were dead in our sins. 
but God resurrected us with Jesus. The cross on which Jesus died, which should have been our punishment, became a billboard of our sin for his victory. Displaying not to us, not just to us, but to all evil everywhere that our sin, our condemnation, our punishment were removed, were taken for us, were buried in a tomb, no longer empowered to accuse us. The cross might have looked like defeat to the evil that didn't understand the upside down kingdom of, uh, of Christ's kingdom, but it was anything but defeat. God explains that what looked like defeat was actually victory. The resurrection proves it, validates it, testifies to the salvation that was won for us in Christ. Not just his resurrection, but our resurrection. Spiritually now, physically someday, when he finishes what he started and makes good on his promise to fix everything. But Colossians chapter 3 teaches us that someday actually bleeds into today. Because Paul explains in the very first verse of our text, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Not you will be. You have been raised with Christ. The gospel that raised you saves you by faith, by faith in the work of God in Christ, available to all of us because of grace. But the good news of resurrection is the good news of salvation because it is the good news that we are no longer dead in our sins, but alive with Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And then he continues, right? Since, if this is true, And you have been saved by Jesus. That means you have been raised with Christ, and that changes everything because the gospel that raised you also changes you. Easter is every day. The resurrection affects our day-to-day, not just our future, but our present here and now because our identity is shaped by the gospel, by the good news of his death and his resurrection. We are the resurrected ones. And so Paul tells us, now you need to live like it. How? We'll look at the text. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, in in these first four verses, Paul assumes our identity as the resurrected, right? He says, if this is true, then this is what you do. This This is what resurrected life looks like. Hearts that look up, minds that look up, because that is where Christ is, and Christ is our life. We've died and come back to life, and that life is protected by, present with, available in Christ alone. And God plays the long game. Even if everything looks bad now, Even if everything is difficult to understand and even harder to experience, our hope is in this glorious return because then our hope will be validated, authenticated, shown to be true. Our authenticity is not in being true to ourselves, but in being true to Christ, who's coming back and making everything right again. And we do that by living in light of the resurrection here and now. Because the gospel that raised you saves you and changes you. How? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the text actually explains that the gospel changes three things. What you love, how you think, and why you do. What you love, how you think, and why you do. And this is what I want us to see about the resurrected life from this text. We'll start in verse 1, how Paul clarifies our new life in Christ, and then look at verses 5 through 8, and then we'll make our way through the text. Remember verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts above. Don't look in, look up. 
direct your heart, what you love, your affections, upwards in Christ. And the way you do that, Paul says, is by putting to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Notice what he actually puts in here. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It's because of these that the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk like this in the life you once lived, but now you actually have to rid yourselves of such things as these. And then another list, look at what he says. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Put to death. The old Puritans called it a, a mortification. Right? Kill the desires of your flesh, the things that belong to your old way of life. Not just what you did, but why you did it. That's why we have these particular lists in this text. The passions that drove you to sin and rebellion, to idolatry. Kill your evil desires. As the Puritan John Owens is famous for saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In the same way that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that what matters more than what you do is why you do it, so here Paul explains that sin goes deeper than actions. Its roots find their, their food and their support in hearts that, that, the, the heart that drives us in this life. This is what life used to be like, but now you have been raised with Christ. Your hearts have been changed. God has made us alive in Jesus. So kill sin. Get rid of it. Life is different now. The anger that used to master us, the rage we used to dismiss as just the way I am rather than something that's trying to control us, the malice, the hostility we used to have towards God and each other, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the, the lust, the greed that, that filled our heart and changed our actions towards others, the way we used to speak about and to others, all of it flows from a heart that is sick with sin. Jesus himself explains that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And even though Jeremiah meant it as a rhetorical question, the answer is that Jesus can understand it. That Jesus did understand it. And even more than that, Jesus is the one who can cure our hearts and relieve the disease that produces affections that are in complete rebellion against the God who made us. The king of the universe. Ezekiel records God's promise to give us new hearts. Why did God promise this? Because that's exactly what we need. New hearts that are no longer dead in sin, but are alive and able by the power of God's spirit to kill sin, which is why Paul commands us to put sin to death. How? By setting your hearts on things above. On Christ. By looking up. I mean, if, if you want to know how to resist sin and temptation how to grow in holiness, how to, how to obey God, the answer is to look at Jesus. Not just as an example and kind of do what he did, but, but look at him, love him, grow in your love for him, sit with him in prayer, sit next to him and read his word together, learn about him and experience his love. Now you might be like, Eric, that just sounds like preacher talk, like that's what you're supposed to say. Let me borrow a phrase from another Puritan, Thomas Chalmers. He, talk, he has a sermon, and it's actually entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Here's the reality. We need something that is so beautiful, so captivating, so powerful, that it expels. It drives out our old desires with a new, more powerful desire. That's how our hearts work. Have you ever noticed when you try to avoid sin that you can't just try harder to stop it? Your hearts need to change. Your love needs to change. A simple illustration to help you, uh, help you out like it helped me. 
Imagine a teenage boy trying to make a move on a girl he likes. The girl invites him over because her parents aren't home. Teenagers, right? In that moment, their desire for each other controls their actions. But imagine that within the first 10 minutes, the father comes home unexpectedly, early, unannounced. Imagine the explosive power of a new desire for survival (laughs) that quickly overrides the desire of the boy who's panicking, looking for a way out, and for the girl trying to explain what's happening. In a similar way, We put to death the desires that defined our old way of life, not by trying harder or doing more, but with a stronger desire, a greater affection. Living in light of the resurrection is living in light of the gospel, the gospel that drove us to righteousness, not by our own works, but by his, by falling in love with Jesus more and more. It is his love that transforms us. It is his love that generates our love for him. We love, the text says in 1 John, because he loved us. This is what replaces our desires for sin with desires for him. Set your hearts on things above. Look up and it will change what you see when you look in. Because the gospel that raised you changes you. It changes what you love. But the text keeps going because the transformation of Jesus doesn't just stop at the heart. It also travels up to the mind. The gospel that raised you also changes how you think. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. You see, when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just change our hearts, he changes our minds, right? Like the old Apple slogan, we think differently. Our mindset is different. The way we view the world and everything in it, everyone on it is radically different. Because our minds are not set on earthly things, but on things above. Like the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Looking up doesn't just change what we see when we look in, it changes what we see when we look around. It changes how we think about others, which is why Paul commands in the next uh, few verses, starting at verse 9, do not lie to each other. Why? Because you've taken off your old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You catch what he's doing there? Don't lie. Why? Because you are not who you used to be. You have taken off your old self like a jacket that no longer fits, who you used to be and what you used to do, and you have new clothes, a new self that's not complete, but is in the process of being renewed in knowledge. Set your minds on things above, because there your minds are being renewed in knowledge, transformed to reflect again the image of the one who made us. This is why Romans 12 tells us not to conform to the pattern of this world, the way that it thinks and the way that it acts, but to be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. When God saves us, he begins this renewal process, this restoration project that he has promised to finish, this process of making us new, and it affects every single part of us, not just our hearts, but our minds too, right? With new desires and affections come new thoughts and reflections on what you're thinking about because our minds and our hearts are set not on this earth, but above, with Christ, on Christ. But even as I say that, here's my caution. Please don't misunderstand me. 
Setting our minds on things above does not remove us from this world. So heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. It affects how we live in this world. As a wise man once said to his very uh, imaginative and persistent grandson, son, your head may be in the clouds, but your feet, your feet are firmly planted on the ground. As Christians, our heads are in the clouds, our minds are set above, but our feet must be firmly planted on the ground in the gospel, living differently here and now. The gospel changes how we think. And that's why Paul continues in verse 11, saying, there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave or free. Christ is all and in all. Because now we see everyone through Christ. We define everybody by Christ. Not by their ethnicity, not by their bodies, not by their culture, not by their status in life, but by Christ alone. Because you see, the identity markers that are used by the world, by our society, they all matter, but they matter under our overarching and all-defining identity in Christ. We are the resurrected before we are black, white, or Latino. We are the resurrected before we are Baptist, Presbyterian, or non-denominational. We are the resurrected before we are Cuban, Romanian, Korean, Italian, Uruguayan, Mexican, before we are American. We are the resurrected before we are on Medicaid or living paycheck to paycheck. We are the resurrected before we are entrepreneurs or business owners or college educated or GED certified. We are the resurrected first and foremost because our identity is in Christ before anything else. Because our minds are set above. Our identities on this earth, they matter, but they matter only in the light of the resurrection of Christ. How he is at work using all of it for his glory. Repairing all of it. This is why we are a community that we talked about months ago, but we keep talking about, reflects the beauty of the diversity of God's kingdom because we are united in Christ, but we are putting the beauty of Christ on full display in all of our differences because like Paul writes, we no longer see anyone from a worldly point of view. In 1 Corinthians, Paul explains that everyone who believes in Jesus is a new creation in Christ We no longer see anyone from a worldly point of view. Now we see them through Christ. Everyone who believes has died with Christ, has been raised with Christ, and must have hearts and minds set on Christ above. We fill our minds with Christ, with what he has said and what he has done, with his word that tells us his gospel. Because you see, living in light of the resurrection doesn't just mean that we submit our affections to Jesus. We also submit our minds to Jesus, which brings me to a question. How is your time in the word of Christ lately? How have you been submitting your mind to Jesus? Setting your mind on things above by looking at the word that he has given us. Explaining what that means. What that looks like. Not as a to-do that we check off, but a get-to. A get-to-do that changes how we think. Now, that's not meant to induce shame, but to encourage and say, if Jesus is telling us to set our minds on things above, that means he's going to be with us as we dive into this word. And sometimes you're going to be looking at it being like, I have no idea what I just read. And then sometimes you're going to be looking at it and be like, I've never read it like that before. And then sometimes you're going to read it with someone in this church, someone in this family, and they're going to be like, did you see that? And you can say, no, I didn't see that. Thank you for pointing that out. Together, we set our mind on things above even though it can be hard sometimes, praying that the Spirit might illuminate for us. Which is why 
we're stepping into the Gospel of Matthew next week and spending a lot of time in there, going verse by verse by verse. It's why we put together these journals, shameless plug, because I want to, we want to help you walk together with us through the story of Jesus. Not to be cool or trendy. It's because of verses like this that tell us to set our hearts and minds on things above. And the way we do that is by submitting our hearts and minds to God's word. And what better way to do that than by walking through the story of Jesus together. Look up before you look in. Look up before you look around. It's only when you do that that you'll actually see reality. And as a familia, we'll experience a gospel that changes not just what we love and not just how we think, but our third point, why we do. Look at, verse, look at our text starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Pause. Listen to how Paul reminds before he's about to command Remember the beginning of our chapter, since you have been raised with Christ, therefore set your hearts and minds on things above. Again, he's reminding them of who they are. He is writing, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. I want you to catch this, why I'm pausing here. This is identity language. As those whose identity is belonging to God, chosen by God, made holy in the gospel, loved as proven in the gospel, this is how you live. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and, and forgive one another. If any of you have a, a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, everything we're talking about, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Be thankful. Familia, our identity as the resurrected reflects the God who resurrected us. Did you catch that with what he just described? We were saved by and now serve the God that Psalm 116 describes as full of compassion. The God whose kindness, Romans 2, tells us leads us to repentance. The same God who Philippians 2 says humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and who in Matthew 11 is described as gentle and humble in heart. The God whose patience, 2 Peter 3 says, means salvation. He bore our sins on the cross and he forgave us. He loved us to the end, through the end, all the way into his resurrection. Don't you see what Paul is doing here? God commands us to clothe ourselves with the very characteristics that he demonstrates in his gospel. Like Joseph in Genesis wearing this robe of many colors, we wear the righteousness of Christ not as something that demonstrates our elite status, but as a testimony to the overwhelming love of the Father. And we don't walk the path alone. We're actually following him, walking in his footsteps. We forgive because he forgave. We, we love because he loved and in this life, our identity is secure because we are in him. We look up, and his love changes what, what happens when we look around. And his peace change, rules what we see when we look in. His love changes everything. And gratitude, like this text says, is the response that overwhelms us as we live in light of the resurrection. The gospel that raised us changes us. What we love, how we think, and why we do. 
which is why Paul writes, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. The message of Christ being the gospel. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, what rules in our familia here is not what we have done. It's not our status on this earth. And it's not even how well we're doing at living in light of the resurrection. What rules here is the message of Christ, the word of God, the gospel that makes us wise for salvation. It's why we talk about our church family as being gospel-centered. It is the songs that point us back to the saving work of the Spirit and the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The gratitude that fills our hearts and overflows with, with notes and chords and melodies of thanksgiving to the God who saved us. What rules here is the message of Christ that made us into the familia of Christ. What rules here is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything about us, that leads us to do whatever we do, from speaking to acting, from hearts to mind, everything in the name of Jesus. Grateful to the God who saved us. Because the gospel that raised you is the gospel that saves you. And the gospel that raised you is the gospel that changes you. It raises your heart and your mind to heaven because you yourself have been raised to new life in Christ. And that life is lived in light of the resurrection. A life that lives out the new life we have in Jesus. We are the resurrected. God has given us new clothes, this text talks about, this illustration that Paul uses. Remember what he says? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. It's why the text tells us to take off our old self and put on the new self. Because God has exchanged the dirty rags of our sins for his robe of righteousness. And those who wear the king's robe, well, they walk different. They talk different. They, they, they look different. They act different. They carry themselves different. What's the old saying? Um, clothes make the man. The Bible actually illustrates this in an Old Testament passage in Zechariah, this clothing exchange that I'm going to read as more of an illustration. And, and to be honest, I don't remember this passage being here when I found it this week. I was like, this is exactly what we're talking about. Here's the scene, Zechariah 3. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who's chosen Jerusalem, these, these people, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? That's the way to describe salvation. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Standing before the throne of God, accused by the enemy, this, this high priest, this person who's supposed to be the holiest among the people of God, is, is dressed in clothes that are fit more for sitting on the curb than standing before the throne. Filthy clothes, the text says. This is the state of all of us before the king without Christ, even the most moral person among us. We are all dressed in clothes that have been marked and ruined by our sin. But like Joshua, someone takes off our filthy clothes. Someone gives us new clothes. Keep reading. He said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. He said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, turban being a sign of royalty. Joshua's filthy clothes are replaced with clean clothes. Just so that, not just so that he's following some kind of royal dress code, but the text says as an external reflection of an internal reality. 
Our sin has been taken away. Our dirty rags, the ways we used to walk in, the old self with its habits, its desires, our earthly nature, Colossians describes, no longer identifies us. We are now identified by the clothes of Christ, the robes of his righteousness, being renewed heart and mind by the creator who made us and the rescuer who saved us. Familia, look up. Look up to the Christ who is your life. Set your heart and your minds on things above. Not because I want you to just stay up there, but because looking up affects what you see when you look around, what you see when you look in. God gives you your identity. Your identity, like we just sang, is, is loved by God, is child of God, is saved by Christ, is, is buried with him and raised with him. Your identity is resurrected together in this new familia that the Lord has made. And it changes everything from what you love to how you think to why you do. Look up because it changes what you say and do when you look around. It transforms what you believe and feel when you look in. Think about the old hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair. The guilt within, upwards I look and see him there. The one who made an end to all my sin. Look up because it transforms what you believe what you feel, what you see, how you live, because this is life in light of the resurrection. As we close, I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to consider what that means for you in your life, what that looks like in your day-to-day, because I could just give you a bunch of theology up here that you can say, yep, pastor, I got it. But what does it look like when you walk into the office on Monday? What does it look like when you're changing a diaper on Tuesday? What does it look like when you're getting the mail and see your neighbor across the street on Wednesday? What does it look like to live life in light of the resurrection? Will you pray with me? Compassionate and merciful God, this morning we feel the weight of our transgressions, but we also feel the relief of your gospel because our sins are no longer upon us. Your word says that they are nailed to the cross and they're declaring your victory. And so we praise you, our victorious king. It is because you died that we can live. And it's because you rose that we live as the resurrected. We pray that you would draw our hearts and minds to heaven, to things above. Draw us away from the earthly things that so easily captivate us. Fill us with a new and a stronger affection for you. Teach us. Fill our minds with your word by your spirit. Overwhelm our hearts with your love and the beauty of your glory. And Lord, empower us to continue to practice living the life you've given us to live. Replacing bad habits with new habits of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Lord, would you break the grip that idols have on our hearts? Lord, would you strengthen the grip that our hearts have on you? We confess the sins that so easily entangle us, that so easily pull our hearts and minds back to earthly things, Lord, and we repent. Would you enable us to turn from the addictions that try to medicate our condemnation but can never actually deal with the sin that's actually killing us? By your Spirit, would you fill us with the desire and the ability to kill sin? And Lord, would you help us not to do this alone? May your love bind us together. Would you draw us into unity and to peace and to gratitude? May your word flow freely among us. 
encouraging us and training us in righteousness, in, in resurrection life. And Lord, we give you thanks for what you have done for us and what you are even now doing in us because of Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen and amen.